Welcome to On the Issues 15 Minutes of Feminism with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report rebel and you know we tell it like it is. This week we add another segment of 15 Minutes of Feminism where we give a serious take on an important issue featuring a single guest, okay, maybe two guests from time to time. On this show we hear from voices at the center of the story, people you should know, those who roll up their sleeves and change the world. These are guests who have things to do, places to be, and something important to say. Now, next week, we'll be back to our regular programming, but today we center on the Supreme Court, and we get right to business with our returning guest, Professor Leah Littman. She is an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School, co-founder of Women Also Know Law, and is one of the co-hosts and creators of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, which focuses on the Supreme Court. And I want to start off with a question about the highlights of this term. A few stick out. One is the court's major Voting Rights Act case in which the court interpreted Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to not prohibit most laws that result in substantial or significant racial disparities in voting. The court in Bronovich versus DNC held that Arizona's two voting restrictions, one that prohibited the collection of ballots by persons other than the voter, and the second that throughout counting votes that were accidentally cast in the wrong precinct on election day didn't violate the Voting Rights Act. But the more significant part of the court's opinion was its reasoning. The court laid out a five-part test for determining what laws actually violate the Voting Rights Act and stacked the deck in favor of restrictive voting laws. So that's definitely one highlight. This Supreme Court term was a bit of a roller coaster. No, you highlighted an important case there. And as I'm sure you're about to point out, there were many others, including some that might not be on our listeners' radars, not to mention the shadow docket. So give us another one, Leah. The second would be the court's religion cases in which the court expanded the protections for religious groups or religious entities to exempt themselves from generally applicable laws. So in a series of cases involving public health measures that were designed to reduce the transmission of the coronavirus, the court held that states and localities could not subject religious entities to generally applicable requirements that required everyone to shut down or everyone to abide by certain capacity restrictions. And those cases are significant because, of course, that is the same theory that the court has used to allow employers to opt out of, among other things, requirements to provide contraception, health insurance coverage, or other requirements that are designed to benefit women. For our listeners and yours too, and those who listen to both podcasts, they may be trying to reconcile the court's opinions this term. So you think about California v. Texas, a case in which the court held that plaintiffs challenging the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate as unconstitutional lack standing to bring that case in a federal court, which essentially meant that three times now that the Affordable Care Act has been challenged, that the act has prevailed. How does one reconcile that case alongside those that you've just talked about? So the court's Affordable Care Act case was decided on very narrow and technical grounds. The court didn't actually reject on the merits the argument that Congress lacked the authority to modify the minimum coverage requirement, nor did it it reject on the merits the argument that if that one provision is unconstitutional, then the rest of the act's provisions have to fall. Instead, what it held is the plaintiffs who brought this lawsuit 
didn't have standing to challenge the law because they weren't actually injured by the minimum coverage requirement that lacked a mechanism to enforce it. So there's no reading this lawsuit either way to indicate what Justice Barrett or Justice Kavanaugh's views are on the arguments about whether the Affordable Care Act is constitutional or what they might say in other lawsuits that challenge key provisions of the act. So there are current challenges that argue, among other things, that Congress lacked the authority to give the Preventative Services Commission the authority to designate certain health insurance requirements. That is, they lack the authority to tell health insurance companies that they had to cover certain services. So it's those challenges, as well as potential future challenges to the contraception mandate, that will, I think, determine the fate of the Affordable Care Act. Well, we've just wrapped up Pride Month, but in reality, we should be having Pride all year round, just like as we celebrate Women's History Month. It should be every month that we're celebrating Women's History Month and quite honestly, the history of all cultures and communities every month. But let's turn to LGBTQ equality and rights and the recent ruling in Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. And I'm thinking about this case in relation to Justice Kennedy as well. You clerked for Justice Kennedy. Tell us about this case and why it matters to LGBTQ equality and rights. So I think it's hard not to read that decision, as well as language from the court's pro-LGBTQ equality ruling in Bostock versus Clayton County, which held that Title VII does prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. It's hard not to read those cases as signaling a trend toward giving exemptions from these civil rights protections to persons with religious objections to same-sex equality. Of course, in Fulton, the court avoided a watershed ruling in which it could have held that every single civil rights statute that burdens some religious practices was presumptively unconstitutional. Justice Gorsuch, Justice Alito, and Justice Thomas would have held that. Instead, the majority in Fulton said that because the Philadelphia requirement gave the city the authority to exempt some people from the requirement not to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, that exemption process created an unduly high risk of discrimination against religious entities. And so that calls into question the validity of civil rights regimes with exemptions, but not necessarily the validity of civil rights regimes that lack that exemption process. But again, given language in the court's opinion from Bostock, in which it said that it was not deciding whether the Religious Freedom Restoration Act required the federal government to exempt employers with religious objections to same-sex equality from Title VII's prohibition on discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. You read those opinions together as well as the case, as well as the court's cases on religious exemptions from coronavirus health measures. And it's easy to see that the court is trending toward giving exemptions from civil rights protections to LGBT and Q individuals. So in light of the cases we've just discussed from Brunovich v. DNC to Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, it's possible that one could be discouraged by what they see coming from the United States Supreme Court or look at Edwards v. Vannoy, where the court held that its recent opinion that states must obtain a unanimous verdict to convict a criminal defendant does not apply retroactively, or one that has many people 
up in arms who care about uh, children's rights. Um, Jones v. Mississippi, where the court held that the Eighth Amendment, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, is not offended by a life sentence without parole for juveniles, including those who are not deemed incorrigible. So, Leah, in light of all of this, were there civil rights, uh, civil liberties victories in this term? I mean, I would count as victories those cases that warded off more dramatic and worse changes to the law. So I think it is a victory that the court did dismiss on technical grounds the lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act. I mean, imagine if the court had completely undone people's health insurance protections during a global pandemic. That would have been disastrous. So avoiding that decision to my mind, counts as a win, even though, of course, the lawsuit never should have even made its way thus far. Similarly, the ruling in Fulton, you know, is a loss for the plaintiffs advancing the cause of LGBTQ equality in that case. But they, too, avoided a more disastrous ruling that would have called into question every single civil rights statute and every single civil rights protection under the sun. So, in some ways, those decisions count as victories in the sense that they warded off what would have been disastrous rulings with much more significant consequences. But I don't want to frame them as victories in the sense that they give people less reason to be concerned about the Supreme Court or as a reason to step back and breathe easy about the Supreme Court. Leah, let's unpack the conversation a bit further. Maybe open this up to a bit of dodgeball predictions, which are hard and messy to do, but let's have at it. Justice Kennedy retired from the court in 2018, and in the last term, sadly, uh, we lost Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, with Justice Kennedy, many people saw him as a warrior for LGBTQ equality. I think that's rightfully so. And Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was known for much more than being a women's rights advocate and being steadfast in that lane. Um, but she was also predictively um, supportive of civil rights and civil liberties, including voting rights. Now, in their stead, we now have Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Justice Barrett has said from the White House lawn that she sees herself in the fashion of Justice Scalia, whom she clerked for, and certainly Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh uh, have not made any kind of inroads in showing that, although they were clerks of, of Kennedy, that they're anything like Justice Kennedy when it comes to LGBTQ equality. So how should we be thinking about the court going forward? Are there any predictions that you have? I think there are a few issues to watch. Obviously, one major case that the court will be deciding this upcoming term is um, Dobbs, the challenge to Mississippi's prohibition on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. So I think how the court disposes of that case will tell us a lot about how they are going to fare on issues of sex equality and reproductive rights and justice. I think a second issue to watch on voting rights is what the court does in response to state or local and possibly congressional efforts to stem the tide 
against voter suppression. There are some states that have attempted to give independent commissions the authority to draw legislative districts rather than self-interested legislators who attempt to lock in their own power at the expense of popular will. Similarly, there are efforts to kind of overhaul the campaign finance system and give people more information about the kind of money that is being spent and on what causes in our electoral system. I think watching to see what the court does on those issues or you know, state courts' efforts to expand voting rights on state constitutional grounds, that will provide us a lot of information about what the court is going to do vis-a-vis -vis democratic efforts to actually expand the franchise. We got some indications when the court read out effectively section two of the Voting Rights Act in Bronovich, but we're going to get others. And then on the LGBTQ equality front, you know, I would just say continue to watch the religious exemption cases. One of the most controversial nomination hearings of a Supreme Court justice was that involving Justice Kavanaugh. He's been on the court now a couple of terms. And I want to know, is there anything that you see that we can predict about his jurisprudence? I think that it is difficult to make broad pronouncements about a justice after a year or two on the court. Sometimes it takes a justice a few years to kind of become comfortable being themselves on the Supreme Court after they emerge from being so heavily in the limelight and spotlight during their confirmation hearings and during their first few years on the court. That being said, I think we do have some pretty clear indications about where Justice Kavanaugh stands on issues like respect for precedent, which could prove to be quite significant when we're talking about what the court is going to do going forward on issues of reproductive rights and justice or LGBTQ equality. In particular, in cases involving criminal justice this past term, so Jones versus Mississippi, which involved imposing life without parole sentences on juveniles or Edwards versus Vinoy, which involved remedying convictions that were obtained by non-unanimous juries, Justice Kavanaugh indicated very little respect and regard for the court's key precedents on criminal procedure. And if his treatment of precedent is indicative from those cases, then that could spell a lot of trouble going forward for reproductive rights, where a lot of the calls for respecting reproductive rights and justice are anchored in respect for the court's prior decisions, recognizing women's right to have an abortion, or similarly in LGBTQ equality cases. So what about current champions on the court? Was there one that you could say really stood out? You took one for the team. Thank you for standing up for civil liberties and civil rights. Who would that be or who would they be? I would definitely highlight Justice Kagan. I think that her dissent in the Arizona Voting Rights Act case, Bronovich, is truly one for the ages. The dissent made some headway in canonizing Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's famous dissent in Shelby County versus Holder, the decision striking down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Justice Kagan basically said, after the court mistakenly invalidated Section 5, it ushered in a wave of voter suppression that wouldn't have happened without the court overruling Section 5. And the opening and closing of her opinion basically says, this court has treated no statute worse than the Voting Rights Act, even though the Voting Rights Act represents 
the best and is so important in the current moment as we try to build a real multiracial democracy. Well, on that important note, I'm thinking again about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Shelby County v. Holder decision where she predicted the need for the umbrella when the thunderstorm would actually hit. And I'm also thinking about Justice Sotomayor, too, who has been holding down the fort in those very cogent, brilliant dissents where she has been fighting very hard for all of us to remember the importance of civil liberties and civil rights across a number of cases, including those that have been part of the shadow docket. But what I want to get to, Leah, is for us to talk about Strict Scrutiny, your podcast. All right, tell us what listeners can expect to hear from Strict Scrutiny in these days. We are covering the Supreme Court and everything they are doing to the best that we can. Over the summer, we'll be doing some deep dives on issues that the court has touched on recently or might in the future, ranging from how to interpret statutes to the administrative state to how the court views rights and what might be better ways than the court's current approach, as well as voting rights. So tune in this summer to get some deep dives on issues that have been on the court's docket and might appear on the court's docket soon. And then when the court returns to its regular session starting in October, we'll be discussing the cases as the court hears them and decides them. So, Ms. listeners, make sure that you tune in for more of Professor Leah Littman and her co-host over at Strict Scrutiny, where you will learn much more about the happenings at the United States Supreme Court. Leah, on every episode, as you know, we ask our listeners about a silver lining going forward, and I'm really curious to hear that from you. I think the silver lining is at this current moment when the Supreme Court is showing itself to be so anti-democratic, we are finally rethinking what the role for the Supreme Court should be in our constitutional democracy. And I hope that that means we will make some changes to enable, you know, the political processes and political branches to pursue more democratic actions without running the risk of being invalidated by a Supreme Court. So necessary conversations about the role of the Supreme Court in our society is the silver lining. And that's Leah Littman. Listeners, that's the rundown. I want to thank my very special guest, Professor Leah Littman, for getting us right to the point and telling it like it is. To you, our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the rundown of 15 Minutes of Feminism with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. Join us again for our next episode where we will roll up our sleeves and hear from guests changing the world. For more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com. You know that. Now, if you believe as we do that women's voices matter, that that equality for all persons cannot be delayed and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring hard-hitting content that you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please be sure to support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear about, then write to us at OnTheIssuesAtMsMagazine.com, and we do read our mail. And if you want to hear more, 15 minutes of feminism, then tell us about that too. 
This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. 15 Minutes of Feminism with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll and Oliver Hogg. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, music by Chris J. Lee, and connecting voices by Lillian LaSalle. And the fabulous Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance.